0: And I hope that you um, are getting more and more curious as you get into the book of Joshua. Uh, This week, we went through chapters one and two. Um, We did some repetitive reading. We won't do that every week. Uh, Whenever I can fit it in, I do, but we might not even do it again, this study. I felt like it was really important for us to get into the skin of the beginning of the story, and that's why we did that. Chapter one began with what you would call an inciting event, Moses's death, right? That was our first question in our homework. And it's so tempting to keep moving ahead, right? To keep reading since we were only half a sentence into the book. But if we're gonna be good students of the Bible, we have to stop and say, why does this matter? We have to pause and say, why do we care? that Moses died. Why is this inciting a change in events? Why is it significant? And so we went back and we looked in our homework and we learned that the generation that had left Egypt and had become exiles in the wilderness, they forfeited their chance to enter the promised land. Right? They lacked faith. And so those 12 spies, they they came back after being in the promised land and only two of them had faith, one of them being... Joshua. And God decided that because of their unbelief, they would not be allowed to enter Canaan. And maybe we kind of agreed with God's decision. You know, as we read the story, maybe we're saying, oh, come on, look at how powerful God showed himself to be. Think of those plagues. And when he flexed on the way out of Egypt, how could they not believe? And so maybe we kind of said, serves them right that they wouldn't get the promised land but I don't know about you, but the text that we went to that told us why Moses was denied entrance into Canaan was a little weird. It's kind of a story for another day. I would love to study it more. But what we did read is that God told Moses to speak to a rock and water would come out of the rock. And instead he struck it, not once, but twice. He had a temper and because of that, moment. God tells Moses, you will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. You will bring the people to the brink of the land, but you yourself will only see it from afar. His punishment was denial into Canaan, and that makes us scratch our heads a bit, doesn't it? That's weird. It leaves us in confusion, and we want to make sure that we really work on our temper ASAP, right? (laughs) We should make sure, however, ladies, that we are still viewing Moses in the appropriate light. I believe that the author of this story really would want us to think of Moses in a good light. He was like no other prophet that had come before him. Moses was the man who brought the people out of Egypt. He was the spokesperson for God, the mediator for God. He provided for them with God's prop- provisions. He was their judge and their leader. We need to see Moses in the fullness of that light. He was an amazing man, and now he is dead. We cannot rush past that. We have to pause and put ourselves in the story. So first of all, guys, think about if you were the people and this happened, how scary would it be? to hear that Moses had died. What questions would come to your mind? How lost would you feel? Would God consume them without Moses there to be the mediator? They had seen some scary things from the heavens in their years. Would God consume them? Now they don't have their spokesperson. They don't have their liberator. There was no longer a go between between them and God. Maybe they questioned Joshua. What kind of leader is Joshua gonna be? Is he still mad at our parents' generation for not taking the land with faith? Would God speak to Joshua as he did to Moses? Okay, but then you gotta put yourself in Joshua's skin. How would you feel If you were Joshua and God comes to you and gives you this job of leading these people into the promised land. Everything that we read about in chapter one, this is God coming to Joshua and giving him Moses' job. Who wants to fill those shoes? Nobody. That would be terrifying. Wondering, is God going to work through me like he worked through Moses? Are these people going to obey me? I mean, he had to deal with the unbelief of the generation that had gone before them. So maybe he was wondering, how will these people respond to me? But here's where I was left wondering and pondering with chapter one. I wonder if there was a fear among the people that, you know, if God, well, God has brought us this far. But now, is the rest gonna be up to us? Like, if, if God has, God's been with us for these 40 years in the wilderness. He's provided water from rocks and manna and quail from heaven, but now here they were and they were on the brink, the very boundary of the promised land. And I can't help but wonder if they, with that loss of Moses, that vacancy, that hurt, that despair that came from Moses' death, if some of them wondered, Are we on our own now? If God was with Moses, but Moses is gone, maybe they felt doubt. I wonder if the people of Israel wondered if God's patience and mercy had been all spent. You know, like if God had had provided and given and protected and cared for them so well, but maybe it was just for the journey to the promised land and now everything was going to be up to them. Well, what did we read? What is the answer to that question? What did we, the readers, and what did the people of Israel and Joshua find out in chapter one? Would God leave them to their own devices? No. By no means was God going to leave them at this point. By no means. The answer to all of the questions that are stirred up in chapter 1 is that God would speak to Joshua as he spoke to Moses, that God would promise his presence with Joshua as he did with Moses. God promised to be with him. And then Joshua promises to be strong and courageous. And then even the people promise to follow Joshua as they followed Moses. So chapter one is so packed and that's why we read it twice because it stirs up questions. We feel tension, we feel unknown. And then the the questions are answered that God would not leave the people at this point. Guys, this was a pretty significant moment for me in the study. We're not even to the first point. This is under introduction. But I want to stop and talk about application. Because this actually stopped me when I realized that this is so often my fear. So often I think, God's been so faithful to me. He has forgiven me over and over again. He has been so merciful. He has provided like water from a a rock and manna from the heaven, I have probably dried up the bank of God's mercy. Anyone else feel that way sometimes? Have that fear? Well, I know what God has had to put up with for the last 30 years of my life. And as I keep moving toward heaven, I'm probably gonna run out of that goodness of God. You know what, I remember a really dark time in my life and I sucked up the mercy of God. So then I started to get this mindset that there's probably not enough then for what's coming my way. That's not true. If God was faithful to bring us to where we are now, he will be faithful again. If God was faithful to bring you to the point of salvation where you became his daughter, he will be faithful to you in the land, so to speak. He will be faithful to mature you, to sanctify you, to grow you from here on out. The people were not left to their own devices as they looked to enter the land and neither are we. Just as God was faithful yesterday, he will be today and he will be tomorrow no matter what we are facing. Let's keep moving. As chapter one ended, guys, we felt good, didn't we? We felt an energy. The promises of God, the giving of the land. God is speaking to his people, wow, this is really good. God must really love the Israelites. This is really good news. Unless you're a Canaanite, then it doesn't look like good news. Who did we find as we opened up chapter 2 of the book of Joshua? We found a Canaanite. A woman named Rahab. Here's how chapter 2 begins. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from, I don't want to say this wrong and everyone giggles, Shittim, (laughs) Shittim, as spies, saying... Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Okay, so we are cued in that right in the foyer of the promised land is a city called Jericho. Probably the most iconic story in this book. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And you guys went through the story. Let's spend some time with her, guys. In our homework, we asked, in what ways is Rahab a surprise twist? In what ways... Does the character and the story of Rahab provide some irony in this book? I love irony. Not much makes me laugh harder and to find it in the Bible delights me. Rahab is drenched in irony. So I'd be curious to hear if we all put our list together, how big that list would be. Here's some of the things. The very first thing is that she's a Canaanite and they don't destroy her right away, right? Everything we just read about in chapter one, the plan going forward is that they're going to destroy the Canaanites. Well, boom, they run into Rahab and they don't kill her. So she's a Canaanite. She's a woman. We should be wonderfully delighted that a woman has come center stage to this story. We read that she is a prostitute. Now, some commentators will try and talk us out of this saying, well, she probably used to be a prostitute, but wasn't anymore. There's no point in going through all of that. I have no problem that she was a prostitute, and I don't think any of us should. She commits treason, right? She lies. Also, people get so distracted, and all they talk about is the fact that she was a prostitute who lied. We can't imagine anyone that bad. I don't think it's worth our conversation that she lied, and we'll keep talking about that. Maybe some of you put that she disregards the king of Jericho. She does not treat him as the king. Instead, she treats the God, the one that no one can see, as king. I love the irony that after strong and courageous was repeated over and over again in chapter one, who is the first person we see being strong and courageous? Rahab. Love that. In fact, what I love about her is that she shows herself to be a theologian right away. This, is a, this was a Jen Wilkin before there was a Jen Wilkin. Here's what Rahab says to the men I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? And here she comes in, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She is acknowledging who God is. That is why she behaves as she does. She says he's a God above and the God below. That phrase shows us that she believes that he is the God of everything. He's the God of the land. And therefore, the king of Jericho is not her king, although that is where she lives. And I can't help but wonder if in this moment she's, she's speaking of the, uh, um, the infiniteness of God. The infiniteness of God. I don't know if that's a word. He is not finite. He is infinite. His reach goes above and his reach goes below. And so maybe in her heart she thought if his reach is that big, then maybe I could be within that reach. And so we see this woman being a theologian telling us what is true about God. What sermon does Rahab preach to us through her actions? There's a lot here and there's so much that we could talk about, but there's just a couple things that I have been learning from her that I want to point out. Things that I think have to be the main things that we get from Rahab because our conversation could go off in so many directions. But I think that what Rahab is preaching to us first, she's gonna challenge our brains because what she is showing us is this truth about election. God choosing those whom he will save. Now this sounds kind of daunting at first, but I wanna just point out something. We went to the story of the woman at the well and we taught by contrast. And I love how these two stories map onto each other. And we, we teased out that the spies went to Rahab, and we looked at the phrase in John, in the book of John, that said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Did you guys see that in the chart? It says that they had, that Jesus and the disciples had to go through Samaria. Well, One thing that we would learn if we spent more time in in that story is that Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs. They saw Samaritans as sacrilegious, kind of as the mutt of their people, people that they didn't really want to have anything to do with. They saw them as dirty. And so they would walk all the way around the land so that they could avoid being in contact with them, but not with Jesus. He had to go to Samaria. Think of the city of Jericho. Think of the walls. Think of how many people might have lived there. What are the chances that the spies would find their way into Rahab's room, into her place? Now, we can, we can conjecture, and that's okay. There's a chance that she was out looking, that she was kind of a woman, like pictured downtown, moving around, maybe because she was still a prostitute, maybe because the fear of God had already changed her. And actually, she is out there just ready to act on her faith. Maybe she saw them. Someone in our group made us laugh because she was like, they were terrible spies. Spies shouldn't be caught. But these spies got caught quite easily. So however they ended up in her room, guys, what I think the story of Rahab teaches us is that the spies had to go to her because she was one of God's elect. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Samaria because he had to save one of his elect. So when we talk about election, what we are talking about is that God is simultaneously in total control of all things. He has sovereign control over all things. And yet at the exact same time, guys, free will exists. We should be both confused by that and delighted by that. God had to save Rahab because he knew her from before time and knew that she would have saving faith. Yet at the exact same time, she was acting on her own free will. Therefore, the spies had to come to her because she had been chosen. So what I want to make sure you understand, maybe that's not really doing much for you. Well, think about this. If you, do you kind of feel like maybe she manipulated the spies? Right, they were at, they were like at her mercy. And so maybe she manipulated them so that she could almost sneak her way into God's family. If you felt that, I would challenge that way of thinking that this woman must have snuck her way in. But possibly even if you're thinking this way, oh, well, she was just so messed up and so bad that she was just desperate to get out of there. She was afraid and she was just acting out of that kind of fear. I would say that those statements aren't big enough. That this story hits on a God who chooses his children and calls them by name. She teaches us about the mystery of election and challenges our minds in that moment. But I also think her story speaks to our heart. And I think it speaks to us about identity. I heard a, an article from Tim Keller this week that talked about how in God's kingdom, identity is not achieved, it is given. Can you pause for a second and think how countercultural that is? Identity in God's kingdom, which is what we're studying in the book of Joshua, it is not achieved. We don't work for this identity. We are given this identity. God speaks identity into us. And so in the moment of Rahab's saving faith, she is no longer Rahab the prostitute who is trying to prove that she's changing. This is not Rahab who's like, okay, I'll stop seeing men and instead I'll put flax on the roof so I sound like the Proverbs 31 woman. That's not how this works. God stirred in her a fear of him a saving faith of him. And in that moment, her identity changed. She was no longer Rahab the prostitute who had debts to pay off. She was Rahab the saint. Rahab the saint who would struggle with sin the rest of her life, whether it was the sin of her past or not. And furthermore, I would say that she was immediately Rahab the saint rather than Rahab with with the scarlet letter on her chest, on her sweater. She was not this woman who was always going to be fighting off this bad reputation. But I'm going to push something else out there. And you guys have probably heard this. Rahab more than likely did not pick her occupation. Women in that age, just like today, more than likely do not choose, hey, I'm going to be a loose woman. I'm going to make my money by selling my body. More than likely, Rahab was abused. In fact, there is a chance that she was part of that king's, um, um, like, he was, she was a concubine, and then when he got done with her, he sends her out to work the ends in the walls of Jericho. But in this moment of salvation, when her faith saves her, she is not even Rahab the victim anymore. She is not Rahab the outcast. She is now Rahab the saint, a child of God. Guys, she did not sneak her way or strong arm her way into God's kingdom. And when she hung that red cord out her window, it's like she was hoisting up a flag. One commentator said the the red blood flag of Israel, taking us back to the story of the Passover. Just a generation earlier, when the Israelites painted their doorframes blood red, From the blood of the Passover lamb, as if to say, This is my only hope of salvation. I will hide myself under here. She hung that red flag, that red garment, and that was her hope. So when destruction came, her house was covered. Rahab also speaks to our hands not just our minds, not just our hearts, but our hands when she shows us that a saving faith is made evident by action. That faith creates works. We read about this in the New Testament. If anyone knows the guys who are studying the book of James, they actually get to study Rahab, where it talks about in James chapter two, how if it's a living faith, then it produces action. It's two sides of one coin, faith and action. It is this action, That puts her in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Without faith, Rahab would have been as good as dead. But with a faith that produced a boldness and action in her, she found her way into the people of God. And we read a couple details about how she was outside the camp of Israel. But that was just for a time. That was just until the law had been followed and she was ceremonially clean. The next sentence then talks about how she lived with the people. This is worth me looking at. Hold on just a second, guys. Oh, you know what? No, we'll save that for when we visit her again. But she's going to come all the way into the camp of Israel and be among the people of God. And for those of you who have seen her in the New Testament, you'll maybe remember that she didn't just barely make it into the family of God. She made it all the way into the lineage of Jesus himself. What are we supposed to learn for our own lives from chapters one and two? Well, I think what we're all waiting for is a chance to think about what does it mean to be strong and courageous, right? That's what we tattoo on our arms. That's what we put on our Instagram and in the back of our phones. Be strong and courageous. But if we got close to this text, we would see exactly how we are supposed to be strong and courageous. When God is first talking to Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left. Guys, I don't mean to be a buzzkill, but do you know what this means? More than anything, to be strong and courageous does not mean be strong and courageous to lose that 10 pounds. Do not be strong and courageous to ask that guy out that you wanted to ask out or to start your own business or to speak your mind, darn it. We are to be strong and courageous to obey. It changes it, doesn't it? We are to be strong and courageous to obey God's word with exactness, not generalities, ladies, with exactness. Do not turn from the right, or to the left? Obey fully. Obey first time. Obey the word of God. Has he not commanded us to be strong and courageous? The start of this book lays out the promises of God. And the more and more that we talk about promises and we're going to go back like we did to the Abrahamic covenant and, and to when God gave promises to Moses and then all the way through the Bible. When we talk about the promises of God, guys, what we need to think about is that these promises are not something that we recline in for comfort okay? The promises give us comfort, right? That's okay. We can say that. But when we read the promises of God, the idea is not that we just cozy up in them so that we can just receive more of his goodness. I think that the way we need to think about these promises is that they are something that strengthens us and emboldens us. To obey more. The promises of God, they strengthen us, they pull us all together so that we can hold tight to what God has asked us to do and so that we can go forward on mission for kingdom work. I think it's really important for us to see the difference in that. To continue to live within those promises means that we are women of action. So, what is it for you as we get started on this book of Joshua? What is the way that you need to be strong, that you need to show courage? The mystery that comes up as we start thinking about that and praying about this great, brave work that we're supposed to do to obey in the way that we don't want to obey is this idea of rest. And that's what we're going to end tonight, is getting curious about this idea of rest. Because, When God talked to Joshua, he's talking about the land as a place of rest. Verse 13 says, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest. And then in 15, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. So we went back and we tried to understand, because to us it's really hard to not just think of a good nap, right? I think there's more than just a good nap. What does it mean for us to receive the promise of rest? So we have to get into the the story of those original people. When they heard rest from from Joshua, they were going to think about how God rested on the seventh day. And then they were going to remember the law that told them that they were to rest. Every seventh day, every seven years, and so on and so on and so on. Rest was part of their normal routine. Why does that matter so much to these people at this time? Well, number one, I think they were tired. They had been slaves as children. And then they were sojourners. They were nomads. They were homeless up until this point in their life. They were tired. And I know that some of you are tired in so many different ways. There are some of you who just need a good night's sleep. But there are so many of you who need a rest that goes deep down in your soul because the weight that you are carrying is heavy and exhausting. Because the amount of things that you are trying to juggle or the change that is happening in your life is exhausting. Or maybe even the way that you're obeying, guys, has made you feel exhausted. God knows that we need rest. And he provides it. But part of why he asks us to rest, whether it's for a Sabbath or just in the way we think and react, is because when we rest, we acknowledge who is God and who is not God. God rested on the seventh day because his work was perfect and complete. The people of Israel were going to rest regularly in the land to remember who was fighting their battles. This was not going to be on them. The weight of Canaan and the promised land was not all on their shoulders. God was going to give them the land and they would need to respond to that out of a belief in him. But it was not up to them. And ladies, the same is true for us. We will find rest when we acknowledge that we are not God and that that is a good thing. He has no limits, but we are finite. We have limits. We cannot keep every plate spinning. We cannot be everything to everybody. We cannot be all places at once. We are not God, and that's a good thing. And that is the good news that we find. In in Joshua chapters 1 and 2. What do you need to tweak in your thinking that you might find rest? And fast forward to the Gospels and hear Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, what good news this is. Thank you so much for giving us a promise that doesn't just make us recline back and be lazy, but it calls us to stand up and to be at alert, to seek you in the land, to be about your kingdom, and to have a new identity. Lord, I pray that the women in this room would know whose they are, that they would know who they are, that they would know what you have called them to, and for the days when it's unclear that they would just obey, and they would understand that if that's all we know, that that is enough for now. Give us the courage to do so, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.